Yeah, welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us. We have uh, Mark and Lens here talking about Redux, open source, and software careers. Um, okay, we got some more people trickling in now. Excellent. Um, Mark has been the main, main, the main maintainer of Redux for six or seven years now. It's been a long time. Um, and he was the visionary behind the modernization of it into Redux Toolkit. Uh, Lens was the mind behind a Redux Toolkit query and a lot of the TypeScript innovation. And both of them have pretty recent job changes. Uh, so I thought it would be interesting to talk about their software careers, how they got started, how they got to where they are now, and um, their experiences ma maintaining large open source projects. Uh, Mark, do you want to kick us off and introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm I'm Mark Erickson, also known as Ace Mark E, also known as that guy with the Simpsons avatar. Um, uh, yeah, I, I got involved with Redux at the start of 2016, about six or seven months after it came out. Uh, I officially became a maintainer in the summer of 2016. So yeah, it's been about six and a half years at this point. Um, and job-wise, uh, I spent 13... <clears throat> 13 and a half years at Northrop Grumman, a large government contractor, and made the decision over last Christmas break that it was time to go try something new. Uh, did a relatively brief job search the first couple months of this year, and then ended up at a startup called Replay, where we're building a time-traveling debugger for JavaScript. Very nice. Yeah, and the time-traveling debugger, I remember when you were doing your job search, you mentioned that as something you were looking at. And I was like, time-traveling debugger, you work on a time-traveling open-source library. That makes so much sense. Uh, and I was, I, it just it, it brought me a lot of joy to see that you were able to bring together your professional career with your what you've just been doing in your own time. I, I, I was really happy that you found something that worked out so well. Yeah. Uh... We we, will, we can talk about it a little more later, but of all the companies I talked to, Replay was the only one that I really, really got excited about what they were building. And it's you know, it's been nine nine months so far, and I love the team, I love the product. I'm getting to solve nift cool and interesting problems and build something that's useful for people. That you know what that just sounds like everything anyone could possibly want in a software job. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Cool. Uh, Lenz, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. So uh, my name is uh, Lenz Webertronic. Um, I've been doing software development for about 20 years at this point. Um, I'm on the Redux team since 2019, I think. I slowly trickled in there. Um, and I've been working at a company, a contracting company called Mayflower for the last seven years. And in September, I started looking for a new job. Uh, I quit my old job, like I had my last day two days ago, actually. And wow. uh, right now I'm in the process of signing contracts with Apollo. So it's not entirely perfectly official, but I will be working at Apollo um, on the open source team for Apollo Client. Oh, that's so great. I didn't realize you were moving to such a, a large brand name in the open source world. That's awesome. It's interesting it's like, because I, I know you've complained a few times about Apollo clients. So is the plan to fix the complaints? Uh, 
Honestly, I, I think every company that I interviewed with right now is a company that I complained with in, in some <laughs> way, because that makes it interesting for me. I, I want to work there. I want to fix all these things that I personally didn't like and make them better and make them better to use. Like, who, who's better at doing something like that than the person who had some complaints about it? Yeah, I really feel that that's 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 never been something that I've actually executed on in a job search, but it's always I've always had that inclination of like, you know, using some product and thinking, oh, I I wish I could just make this better. Uh, but it's it's cool that you're actually following through and joining a company to fix some of those complaints if you also, care enough to complain, you know. Yeah, I, I have to say this at this point. Whatever I touch, I completely abuse every library, like to the point where <laughs> everyone who made it will say, no, no, it was not meant to be used like that. Okay, that's interesting. You can do that and things <laughs> like that. So so whatever I touch, uh, I, I play with it 10 minutes and I file the first bug report or the first pull request an hour later. It, it always happens. So it, it's not that this or any any company any other company i interviewed with would have bad software quite the opposite otherwise i wouldn't want to work on it it's just that i had that little thing that was irking me so much that i wanted to work on it yeah that makes a lot of sense and you know what as soon as once a tool is made who's to say what it's meant to be used for screwdrivers screwdrivers make a great pry bar okay i i am i am now legally obligated to refer <laughs> to hiram's law which was apparently coined by a google engineer some years ago and uh, literally if you go to like hiramslaw.com or something there's a version of the quote what what it amounts to is that um any observable behavior of a tool or library will be used and depended on by somebody, even if that's never a thing you intended them to depend on in the first place. And boy, have we seen that with Redux. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. I have, I have the quote here. With a sufficient number of users of an API, it does not matter what you promise in the contract. All observable behaviors of your system will be depended on by somebody. Yep, that sounds about right. And it's really like like you, you fix a bug that blocks 20, 50, 100 people. And then someone comes around and is like, why is this bug? Like, like there's even an XKCD about yes, six, yes. Six, the, 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 back, uh, the, the processor overheated when you held down spacebar. And then someone comes along and is like, yeah, why is why did you break my spacebar heating uh, function? I had an Emacs macro for that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Do you have, do you have any memorable stories of that with Redux? Is anything? So there is there's, there's one that immediately comes to mind. Um, we tried a very different architecture with React Redux version six in 2018. Uh, the React team was starting their advertising of you know the upcoming future suspense and concurrent mode concepts, and they had some meetings with the maintainers of the major state libraries. So, you know, Redux, MobX, Apollo, whatever, uh, trying to give us a bit of a heads up about where they were trying to go towards. And so I, as a good maintainer, was trying to, you know, what's the phrase, skate towards where the puck was going to be. And 
we worked on re-architecting React Redux to do a couple things. One was we wanted to use the new React Context API to pass down the store instead of the old Context API that was deprecated. And I wanted to try to come up with a way to make things compatible with concurrent rendering. And React Redux has always worked by having individual components subscribe to the store, call get state, do the comparisons in either you know connect map state or use selector, and then decide if the component should actually re-render. Right. And the thing that they warned about was this concept of tearing, where if React can pause its rendering behavior and you know do like let the browser handle some events pick up where it left off later, then it's possible that like a Redux action could be dispatched during that pause. And you could end up with like the top half of the tree rendering from Redux state version A and the bottom half of the tree rendering from Redux state version B, which mm. could cause discontinuities. So we were trying to think of how can we re-architect React Redux to avoid that problem? And what we came up with was basically calling, get, only having the provider component subscribe to the store, putting the state, the Redux state into a React set state call, re-rendering from there, and then passing the new Redux state down via context. And React always ensures that during a given render pass, the entire tree sees the exact same context value. So that would avoid the tearing issue. Uh, ultimately, we ended up having to kill version six because it turned out that was basically like the worst possible thing you could do in terms of React performance. Oh, but no. the other issue of this, so some users lazy load reducers and they want to inject those reducers into the store when certain components get loaded. And we've never supplied like an official way to do that. And what people in the community had come up with was typically call like injecting the reducer in the constructor for a class component so that the store is updated before the component tries to call get state and run its map state to props function. And the problem was that that relies on the Redux store immediately calculating a new state with that reducer added and having the new state available by the time map state runs. And if you, when we were passing down the state via context, the component could update the store, but it wouldn't see the updated state. It was still seeing the state that existed from the provider at the top of the tree before the render pass started. And so we had some users file complaints saying, you broke my ability to lazy load reducers and have this actually work. Yep, yep. That's actually, that was something that one of the last large products that I worked on did. And it it had so many downstream weird problems. Like it made, it made providing type guarantees about the state very difficult to do as well. <laughs> that's, and like, that's so it funny. Was, it, it was never a thing that we advertised that, you know, this is the, the way to, you know, inject lazy loaded reducers. We never advertised or you know defined the idea that you know you can do this in a constructor, and then by the time you implement or by the time map state runs, that it's safe to read it. 
It was just an implementation detail and an artifact of how the code worked, and sure enough, people relied on it. Naturally. <laughs> That's so there are also some other cases where we get complaints about old APIs like uh, Connect. I think we removed some options in the last version. Uh, Mark uh, the the, knows the now there. Connect Advanced API that was built by a user as part of the version 5 rewrite. Connect Advanced. That's a scary name to me. Okay, so yeah. uh, really, really quick recap. Um, React <laughs> Redux versions 1 through 4 were written by Dan Abramoff um, it, within that first year. And right about the same time that I took over in mid-2016, a user filed an issue and basically said, yeah, I've, I've rewritten React Redux pretty much from scratch, and I think it runs faster. Would you like this as a PR? And I was justifiably skeptical <laughs> and, and started tossing that, well, have you considered this case or this case? And the user actually started making tweaks to their to their branch and you know actually handling those and eventually i saw that some benchmarks showed that it was indeed faster and so i began collaborating with this guy jim to you know actually make this really happen and that is what we shipped as react redux version 5. Uh, it just so happened that jim had some specific needs or like was wanting to handle uh, the process of like extracting props and state in a slightly more complicated way than what the the map state API provided. So we implemented it. He re-implemented Connect as a two-layered piece. There was a lower level that was like more generic, and then there was a level on top of that which implemented the exact Connect API that already existed. Oh, and I see. so we so we'd had that split between Connect and Connect Advanced as part of the public API through versions 5, 6, and 7. And when we, when we put out version 8, I went ahead and removed that Connect Advanced layer instead. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Honestly, I just well, wanna... I, I've never seen anybody out there use that. There, there were a handful of people, like there was that, that Kia wrapper library that was using it for a while and then once we released the hooks api they started using that instead all right i want to jump in here uh we're talking with mark and lens uh the two of the maintainers of redux uh we're talking about open source software careers and redux specifically um oh, i, I want to call we do have some people here we have a lot more people than we had 10 minutes ago um I want to call out, we have opened up the Q&A chat channel. Um, so we will be keeping an eye on that. If you have any questions or comments, uh, we will be monitoring that. Um, yeah, that's a fun bit of Redux history, Redux through the ages. Um, I guess both of you, maybe Mark first, how, how did you get involved with Redux? How did you manage to start, you know, start your soft your open source career in getting involved with uh redux entirely by accident and reactive flux had a lot to do with it um so i start i got my first full-time programming job in 2008 my first web app was in 2011 but it was using a, a java framework called google web toolkit which compiled mm. java to javascript my first javascript app was in 2013 and it was using a mixture of jquery and backbone so i spent a couple of years using backbone and 
did some neat things with it, but also found all the limits of you know what you could do. And I was piling like a dozen plugins on top of it to make it do anything useful. So mid-2015, I was starting to think about rewriting this GWT app using anything other than GWT, but I'd found the limits of Backbone. I'd heard about React, and so I started reading some tutorials and trying to learn about it in my spare time. Like it was a work project, but I was trying to do this learning outside of work. Um, somewhere in that process, I found React Flux, which at the time was still on Slack, and I just I joined and I just started working and reading other people's comments. Within the next couple months, I had read enough and I'd seen enough discussions that I started to see people asking questions like, oh, hey, I, I know the answer to that. Let me be helpful and, and try to answer it. Then I would see questions where it's like, oh, hey, I saw a blog post about this the other day. Let me go back in my browser history and find that post I was thinking of. Then I kept finding myself pasting the same blog post links over and over. So I started making a list of the articles and resources that I was referring to most of the time. And I was helping so much that by the end of the year, I was asked to be a moderator and I still hadn't even actually written any real React code. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I didn't write any real React code until uh, December 15 or so, like six months after I'd found Reactiflex. So right at the start, right at the start of 2016, um, I was seeing the same questions about Redux being asked everywhere. And by, by pure coincidence, Redux had come out in the middle of 2015 at the same time as I was trying to learn React. And so I was seeing discussions about it, seeing questions pop up, and I was seeing the same questions across Reactiflux, Reddit, Stack Overflow, whatever. So I filed an issue on the Redux repo kind of like half of volunteering to write an FAQ page for the Redux docs. Dan said, sure. I had some free time on my hands. And so in, I think, February and March 2016, I gathered up a whole bunch of questions that I was seeing pop up a lot, uh, gathered up links to issues and Stack Overflow answers that tried to answer them, wrote up you know, a whole bunch of descriptive paragraphs, filed the PR, Dan merged it, uh, gave me commit rights, and for the next few months, I felt like I only really had per like permission, at least in my own head, to just help triage issues and do some more docs cleanup. And it wasn't until mid-2016, uh, Dan had been working on React for about eight or nine months by that time and got busy with the React team, that he messaged myself and a guy named Tim Dorr and said, yeah, you're the maintainers of Redux now. Here, have fun. Wow. Yeah, I, I feel like that's something Dan has been really good about is extending offers to other people to leave the door open and give them. I, I like what you said about only having permission in your head to triage issues. I feel like that's such a barrier to so many people is not giving themselves permission to do more. And mm -hmm. it, really, that's real. That so much of it is just if you want to try something, doing the code is really all the. Is, 80% of the barrier. It, it took me another two or three months after that. So like the end of summer 2016 to where I really started to feel like I both knew the code enough and like had enough of a, in a sense, authority 
to actually sure. say, I know how this works and this is how it should work. And like that, that React Redux version 5 issue that I was overseeing and a couple other issues popped up were kind of the catalyst for actually feeling like I had ownership. Sure, that makes sense. When you actually understand how it works and have an opinion about, right, you need to understand it well enough to get that sense of what should it be doing. Mm-hmm. I could see that being a barrier, uh, you know, a big hurdle to get through in maintaining something like that. Uh, yeah, Lens, how about you? How did you end up getting into Redux? Yeah, so um, I think I started using Redux about uh, 2017. And I quickly started writing my own little abstractions. And in our company, I started at that point to uh, support other teams a little bit, like uh, review code, uh, give them input on their implementation. And what I saw was that essentially every team was using a completely different library. Like, of course, they were using Redux, but everyone had their own handwritten helper to to use it, or they were using external libraries. There was handwritten middleware, there were thunks, there were sagas. And I I began uh, experiencing the lack of opinionatedness of, of Redux, like, like firsthand. If you're in a contracting company and you switch teams a few times, and every time you see something, it's it should be the same and it's completely different, <laughs> and everyone has a completely different opinion of something. Um, so I, I started searching for a library for, for me to use Redux and tried promoting that company internally. And that was uh, TypeScript FSA, which to this day, I think is an amazing library. It's super simple. It just creates action creators. And then there's TypeScript FSA uh, reducers, which also creates reducers on top of that. And I, I love the thing. And my colleagues did too. And we even could drunkenly sing the whole manual of that thing. <laughs> like we had a party at one point. Well, the company band was was just jamming, and we just started singing the documentation for that. So, <laughs> so, so that's like the level of nerdiness we're talking there. That's pretty um, good. And at some point, I was just standing at the train station, uh, scrolling Reddit, and Redux Toolkit, or at that point, Redux Starter Kit popped up. Uh, and it was like the first official mention when when Mark was uh, trying to to publish it. I think it was like one of the last days of 2018, and it looked really interesting. I sent it to my colleague, but the TypeScript support wasn't there, so we we stashed it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to look at that later. And during the following year, I got more into doing open source actively and. That's like a very important thing for me. I became uh, a maintainer of a Fork TS Checker Webpack plugin. And I was super scared of that first maintainer role and even wanted to decline the offer. <laughs> and the maintainer there, uh, John Rayleigh, was just writing something like along the lines of, hey, it's totally okay. It, it doesn't me- need to be a burden. Open source is really opportunistic like 
you are here, you're the right person at the right time. If you don't have the time to do this in three months from now, you can stop again. Because I was afraid of having that burden, having to do this forever now, if I accepted that offer. And that really helped me get confident in doing open source. So I started on that. I started to contribute to a few other things. And after I think uh, Nick McCurdy, who's also listening here, uh, mm -hmm. had contributed the TypeScript types, I revisited Redux starter kit. And at that point, it was already an amazing tool and it surpassed uh, TypeScript FSA in many, many points. But it still wasn't exactly where I wanted it to be. I wanted to add a little bit more stuff. And I just started doing pull requests. And the problem with those pull requests was that I was a bit too much into TypeScript at the point, and Mark didn't know TypeScript back then. Wait, wait. So as too much into TypeScript as opposed to now? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. But... Um, what what I essentially did was write pull requests in a way that Mark could understand the TypeScript and walk him through it, essentially teaching the maintainer of the library the language of the li library. <laughs> that, that was that was a really awkward time frame because like I, I I wanted to at least have decent TypeScript support, but yeah, like I didn't start actually learning TypeScript myself until early 2019, and that was still app level. TypeScript. So yeah. someone else contributed a it did the work to port the library itself from JavaScript to TypeScript and when started filing PRs around that time or a bit after but there there were a few months in there where I actually almost could not even work on the library myself because I didn't know TS well enough to do it. Yeah. yeah. And you also think... couldn't really review it which was awkward for both of us because like like I I do a pull request and you cannot really say if I'm doing the the worst stuff in the world there, or if it's amazing. Like like no way of telling for you. So yeah, I, I want to I want to call something out there. I like Mark what you said about learning app level TypeScript. I think that's one of I think that's a distinction in TypeScript expertise that maybe a lot of people aren't fully aware of because if you haven't maintained an open source library you just have never expo been exposed to the fact that it's so difficult to get types to a level where they are expressive enough for the ways everyone uses the libraries, especially something as flexible as Redux. So I can totally imagine how, you know, someone comes in trying to fix these type bugs that are requiring like nested generics and type inference. I, I, I don't even know if I know TypeScript well enough to you know, say the right jargon here. But yeah, no, that... At that point, someone could also just have faulted in and said, like, I rewrote the whole thing in WebAssembly and it's faster now. <laughs> yeah, I, I did a blog post at the end of 2019 where I talked about my journey learning TypeScript as both an app developer and a library maintainer. And... At that point, I, I finally felt comfortable to actually work on you know, Redux Toolkit and a couple other things. And I, I put together some summaries of my own learnings at that point in time. And I, I feel like what I wrote in that post was, pretty, was pr still pretty accurate. And then I did a talk this spring about lessons learned maintaining TypeScript libraries. 
And again, like that divide between app level TypeScript, where it's basically just, you know, I, I declare types for my props, my API responses, my my function arguments, that sort of thing, versus having having to write a whole bunch of generics and consider all the possible ways people can call the library methods and handle inference and like considering types as part of the public API, two very different skill sets. Yeah, definitely. And it's not to say that an app cannot have library level TypeScript. There are many points in an application where you just have have that glue or that central building block where you can have incredibly complex types. But once you start writing normal components uh, and all of that stuff, you don't really write a lot of TypeScript. You, you, you write some types, you write some interfaces, and that library code or that glue code should do all the rest for you. So those are just two completely different styles you have, have in there. Definitely. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of you know, internal libraries in apps that I've worked on where it's just so much harder to get true type safety all the way through end to end that what I've seen much more common is people will look at, you know, the, there will be some helper function and rather than have true end to end type safety, they'll specify what the input type is and what the output type is and just use any all the way in between because that's way faster. It, it's also totally fine. At some point, right. TypeScript doesn't know. Like, you as a developer can say much more accurately what happens in there. TypeScript can just guess on a very rough level and often it's, it's not accurate enough and you have to tell it and you have to as any or as unknown somewhere. But then you have to have a very good outer API and good types for that outer API that really describes what happens internally. And for everything that you guarantee there, you need a test. Right. That's the trade-off. Once you, you can either have type safety all the way through, and then you don't need tests because you, the types, or you need fewer tests because the types are being actu active, accurately checked at every stage of it. Or you can type the inputs, type the outputs, and then rely on unit and integration tests to ensure that those guarantees are accurate. For and sure. in, in, in Redux Toolkit, we've got, we've got both. We have you know, obviously lots and lots of runtime unit tests, but we also have a lot of what we refer to as type tests, where we, we write TypeScript code, and the, it's in a test, but the test itself may never even get executed. What matters is, mm. does this compile correctly? And we actually have type-level assertions that if I you know, if I call this function, that the return of that function is you know an object with a field name called name that is a string or something. Sure. So that we, we check and make sure that the types themselves behave as expected. And the infuriating thing there is, if you uh, build in a bug somewhere and something becomes any, all of the type tests will still pass if you don't check if it's any on every level of every type test. Hmm. Okay. So it's. Wait. Can you? Can you? I'm not sure. I, I grasped that. So you you have to check every level because if an any gets introduced, it will just slip by. 
If you say, like, expect type number, and the actual type is any, it'll pass. Oh. Unless you do an explicit check that says, make sure it's a number and not any. Oh, interesting. That sounds... And, that's... and writing this and not any is a feat in itself, because you cannot really test if something is any or not in TypeScript. Uh, you essentially have to write a ternary uh, that usually would either return true or false. And in the type of passing it any, it takes both ways. So it returns true and false. And by what? that, you know that it's any. <laughs> okay. It's funny. Like I, I hate writing <laughs> nested ternaries in actual code. It's something I deliberately try to avoid, if at all possible. And unfortunately, in TypeScript, that's basically the only way to write type-level comparisons. Right. Wow. Yeah, I was, I was before you answered that, I, I had the thought of, how would I even test if something was any? And I was coming up blank. So, yeah, that, <laughs> that sounds very difficult. That's the, yeah, that sounds, that's one of those library-type concerns. Oh. That most people will never encounter when they write TypeScript. That's wild. Hopefully, and, <laughs> and honestly, I, I think every little feature in Redux Toolkit, uh, you, you can just like pick any TypeScript behavior out. There have been at least four implementations that each took one complete weekend that maybe <laughs> didn't work in one TypeScript version and was completely scrapped because of that. And that, then I started again. Or a real fast example, um, I, I took over maintaining the reselect library, which is commonly used with Redux, uh, about a year ago. And someone else had contributed new TypeScript types, which did a much better job of inferring the right arguments for the selectors. And I spent several weeks last fall trying to get those in and improve them. And I would publish a new patch release. And a few days later, someone else would say, oh, this breaks in another case. And I've gotten better at TypeScript, but I'm still very limited in my knowledge in a lot of ways. And so I was repeatedly begging for help either here or in the TypeScript Discord. It's like, help, I know what I want the types <laughs> to do. I don't know how to make that happen. And some folks like Redsum19 and, and uh, P. Grise were you know, helping walk me through how to accomplish some of what I wanted. And so I eventually, like, reselect 4.1.5 was then pretty stable for about a year. Well, a couple months ago, as the TypeScript developers were working on TypeScript 4.9, they made a change to the compiler that broke exactly one library in the ecosystem, reselect. Oh, and no. It broke, and it broke that massive 30-line type definition that I had spent weeks slaving over. And oh, so they, they pinged me in the issue because they run a, they similarly have a battery of like hundreds of libraries. That they will compile with every PR just to see if they break anything. So they pinged me and I explained what this type was trying to do. And the creator of TypeScript himself, Anders Helsberg, looked at my description and gave me a new type definition that accomplished the same thing. And it was actually a lot shorter and simpler. But the problem was it only works with TypeScript 4.7 and higher. Oh, no. And we still need to support where we're trying to support backwards through like TypeScript 4.2. So then it became a question of how can I use this older, <laughs> more complicated version of the type for TypeScript 4.2 through 4.6? 
and use the better, simpler version of the type for TypeScript 4.7 and higher. And this involved stupid, hacky build time shenanigans that ones had already come up with for use in Redux Toolkit several months earlier. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah I, and, I, and I, you I could I, also do the, the other thing of uh, shipping multiple type definitions for multiple versions. But essentially, you would need a build system to template those. Or otherwise, you have a complete chaos of maintaining them all the time. Mm-hmm. So there's no good way of doing that at the moment. Um, but but I think we get too too much into TypeScript at this point. Yeah, I was, I was about to suggest we, we flip over and do the uh, and talk about career stuff for a while. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, that, that's a good idea. We could we could probably spend another two hours talking about weird TypeScript quirks. Easily, because there's so many. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'll let me. Re- reintroduce because uh, we had another huge surge in listeners. Uh, We're here talking with Mark and Lenz, the maintainers of Redux, uh, both of whom had recent job, or, you know, both of whom had major career changes or job changes in the past year. Uh, So we're here talking about open source uh, software careers and Redux. Uh, We have a couple of questions in the Q&A channel that I just want to, as we're changing topics, I just want to raise. Shoot. one of them, um, what's the 30-second explanation of Redux for someone very familiar with React? Redux is a library for managing state outside of React in a way that is predictable and helps you understand where, when, why, and how the state changed in the application. I like and it. And I just want to put the emphasis on outside of your app. The idea is really to not have the logic inside your app, but to move all the logic out of your app, at least the global domain logic you might have or the business logic. So you have that independently, you can test that independently. It's not mangled into your components. I like it. That's always been that outside of the app, being able to be tested separate from the uh, the UI has always been what I appreciated most about Redux. Um, all right. Here's a. We have another one. Uh, what's What's your opinion? What's your recommendation on using vanilla Redux in 2023? Never, never. More specifically, we we released Redux Toolkit as the way as a the the simpler approach for writing Redux code in October 2019. We rewrote our tutorials to teach that as the default in 2020, and today we want everybody who is writing Redux code in any way, shape, or form to be writing that code using Redux Toolkit. And the good news is you can you can use it day one in a brand new project, or you can incrementally migrate an existing project to use Redux Toolkit piece by piece over time. Um, in fact, I did a lot of that at my new job at Replay this year. It was a React and Redux app that was written in you know really 2015. And I spent months migrating that code to you know modern redux and making a lot of other cleanup changes and all the old redux code still worked as i migrated some pieces of it to redux toolkit so that's that's one of the very intentional things about redux toolkit's design you also don't need to migrate everything so you can really say like this is all code we're never going to touch it again it just works and just write the new code it works side by side but really, when I see people, especially people learning uh, Redux uh, post 
examples of old-style vanilla Redux code, every time my toenails just really curl up. It, it, it's painful. Uh, it, it, it's so hard to see that people hurt themselves so much because someone gives them bad advice, uh, uh, forwards them an old uh, tutorial, or even someone really selling a completely outdated tutorial as something new and up-to-date. Or for that matter, like free, co free code camp, uh, their Redux tutorial is still teaching the old style. Uh, most mm -hmm. boot camps that I've heard about are still teaching the old style. And that's, you know, that's very frustrating for us as maintainers because we've been you know, teaching Redux toolkit as default for, you know, three plus years now. And we're really all up and down on Twitter and every time we see a tutorial <laughs> or a blog post that shows the old style, we just post something under it in the lines of please, please uh, do yourself the favor, learn something else. Uh, don't do this. Don't read this. Please correct your article. Uh, we we're really wasting hundreds of hours on that. Wow. Yeah. All right. One more question. Then let's uh, shift gears into talking about careers more more specifically. Um, with in React, there's the context API. When is it appropriate to use Redux versus the context API? And I know that's uh, a I, very common question. Yep, I, I see it all the time, which is why I wrote like a 5,000 word article entitled Why React Context is Not a State Management Tool and Why, do, why It Does Not Replace Redux. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, really I, short, I, the really short version is that context is designed for passing down a value. It doesn't manage any state at all. Um, the slightly longer answer is please read the article so I don't have to repeat myself. <laughs> and I got the link here. I, I, I want to point one thing out here too. Uh, the question is not, do I use context or Redux? They do completely different things. Uh, if you want to manage state that is global state, that has logic behind it, so it needs to be managed, that regularly changes, that you want to share throughout your application, you need a state management library for that. Uh, context is not a state management library. It's totally okay to not use Redux. We oftentimes point people into other directions where we think they might be better off with another library. But please don't fall into the pit of uh, context is a state management library and I'm going to use context. It, it will bite you. At some point, it will just come back and bite you. Definitely. All right. Um, so I know... Lens, you are currently in the middle of a job change. Uh, Mark, you're about nine months into a, a job change. Um, yeah, Lens, could you talk about how you approached changing careers or changing jobs? Not, you're still doing the same career. But uh, yeah, you said you've been writing code for 20 years. Uh, what does the job search look two decades in? Uh, sorry, could you repeat the last uh, sentence? Sure. Um, you said you've been writing code for 20 years now. Uh, what does a job search look like 20 years into your career? Um, I can't tell you if there's any difference because uh, honestly, I've never really actively searched for a job before. It just always kind of happened and I said yes or something like that, I guess. <laughs> um, this is the first time I really deliberately put myself out there and said, I want a new job. 
And that's kind of also like the fault of Redux, if you will. Um, I've been doing contracting work at Mayflower and it's an amazing company, amazing colleagues. And we also have amazing uh, projects. So it's not like that contracting where you're like two weeks and then you go to the next customer. Uh, we stay with one customer for a very long time. So in, I only had two projects in those seven years. And uh, oh. one I was for two years and the other I was for five years. And that five-year project has been with the company for 15 years at this point. So it's it's very stable. You identify with what you do. And uh, I really love my colleagues. So from, from that standpoint, I would have no reason to ever change company. But with Redux, I suddenly have an impact on the whole ecosystem. And uh, that's a little bit addicting. I, I have ADHD and maintaining an open source library and interacting with people about it gives me that dopamine hit that I really need to stay with something. Um, and I'm at the point where I thought, okay, people kind of know me. Um, I could just put myself out there and see what happens. And that's what I did. Like I told everybody at the company, um, or at least like the CTO, CFO, CEO, I, I, I told them before, hey, I want to change uh, careers a little bit. Um, I'm going to put myself on Twitter. Please don't be shocked by it. And they agreed. So I just put a tweet out that I'm looking for a job. I wrote a page describing myself and also put it on my GitHub profile. And the reaction to that was absolutely amazing. I think that tweet got like 70 retweets and 30 or 40 of those were like quote tweets of people that are really out there in the community. And as a consequence, many companies contacted me. So uh, at some point I had some, some Excel sh sheet uh, and tried to keep an overview of what was happening and who I had to talk to. And it was extremely confusing. Um, especially confusing, I'm, I'm in Germany um, and I've been talking to a lot of international companies. So we have a different vocabulary when we talk about jobs, when, when we talk about the concept of a salaried employee. Uh, a US person has a completely different look on what that is compared to a German person. Um, all these things like uh, vacation days, uh, paid time off, um, holidays, uh, like like state holidays and all of that stuff works completely different. Um, many international companies only want you as a contractor and not as an employee because it's too much work for them or they are not sure how it legally works internationally and all of that stuff. So there's like tons of things to talk about. And then there was also one thing that I really didn't expect, and that is how much you talk to a company to finally get a job. Because before, with my current company, I, I went there, I talked to the people for two hours, 
I did like three hours of a project and showed it to them and then I had a job offer. And going to to a US company, um, I think I, I talked to 15 people at Apollo at this point and I talked to them between one and three hours each. Wow, um, 15 people for an hour, one to three hours. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a few calls were two or three people, so, so okay. it's it's not that bad. But but the sheer amount of of people coming from a company that has absolutely no hierarchy. I mean, it's just developers and a few people in HR because we need HR and it doesn't work otherwise. And uh, the C levels, and and that's all the hierarchy we have. And now I'm talking to a manager and the manager's manager and the VP of engineering and the CTO and colleagues from three other teams and <laughs> that's wow. so confusing but yeah uh, I, I kind of got through all of that and I talked to a lot of really amazing people at a lot of really amazing companies but now in the end it looks like I'm landing at Apollo very nice yeah I, I think I'd like to I think it would be interesting to return to the question of um, employment in Germany versus employment in the U.S. Because I think I think that would be really interesting to compare and contrast how that works. Um, but M Mark, can you talk about how you thought about your job search? Um, I, I know it, you know seven years to me sounds like a long time at one employer, but you stayed with Northrop Grumman for thirteen. Yeah. So I, I'd love to hear about how you decided that it was time to move and how you uh, thought about your search. Well, I can give the two-hour version of this, but we don't have <laughs> two hours, so I'll try to make it really short. Um, I, I joined Northrop in 2008. I kind of, like, a lot of this is actually going to sound very, very similar to what Lynn's just described. Uh, I was lucky enough to be on one project for about nine years, uh, 2011 to 2020. Um, that project got canceled at the start of 2020 and ended up working on this internal metrics database tool for a couple of years. And I was very for I was always very fortunate in terms of you know managers that I had, projects I was on, tasks I was doing, like people that I worked with, uh, to where I generally enjoyed things. Like the bureaucracy and stuff were annoying, but I was ha I was satisfied on a personal level with what I was doing. And several things came together like almost literally a year ago, right before Christmas break, to where I finally decided it was time to go out and look for something different. And I'll be honest, one of, the, one of the things that had kept me there was I keep reading all these discussions about, you know, hiring practices in the greater software development ecosystem, especially in like, you know, Silicon Valley land. And I didn't want to have to go through any of that. Like, <laughs> I haven't like I have a comp sci degree, but I haven't you know spent time looking at data structures and algorithms since college. I don't want to have to spend weeks studying just to prepare for a Google interview or something. Um, I also didn't want to work for, you know, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, whatever. Mark, but, what? Yeah. Hmm? <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, go ahead, Lens. Oh. Okay, I think I'm the one with sound problems. I thought your microphones ah. were going weird, but uh, yeah, I'll be right back. I'm sorry. Okay. Um. So anyway, what I was... <laughs> what I was kind of secretly hoping would happen was that I could leverage my, you know, 
the reputation that I've built up over the last six or seven years as, you know, the Redux guy and basically bypass most of that. And happily, that is actually what happened. Um, so kind of similar to what Len said, uh, I advertised on Twitter right after the start of the year that um, I, I was available and looking for positions. And I got flooded with with companies and people contacting me and saying we would be interested in having you join. And at that point, I was able to just sort of pick and choose. I, I filtered the initial list of companies down to like 15 or 20 that at least sounded interesting. Started having you know that first round of getting to know you discussions. And Replay was on the top of the list from the very beginning. And I, I talked with them a little more seriously at the end of that first round of discussions started to set up a couple actual interviews with companies. And honestly, Replay was the only one that actually excited me. So I ended up short-circuiting the whole process and just saying, yeah, give me an offer and let's go. So in that sense, I actually feel totally unqualified to give like any meaningful advice or takeaways on how to search for a job because you know, get involved with Redux in 2016 is not a thing that anyone else can actually like repeat at all. Sure, maybe not directly, but I do think I, I, you know, maybe it's not a directly applicable one-to-one -one, do this get job, but you have been authentically and deeply engaged with the React and Redux community for, you know, the better part of a decade at this point, point. and I do think that is something that is good advice. Is just like join a community, see how you can help. Keep helping, and you know, good things will come from that. Just by nature of, you know, as you're being, you know, if if you are helpful to people, people will want to help you back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like I, and to be clear, like I never intended to get you know involved sure. in Redux. I never intended to become a maintainer. Uh, none of this was out of like any ulterior motives or grand plan. It was entirely by accident. Um, but because I got involved, because I've been persistent about trying to help people and contribute and answer questions and all that other stuff, that has paid off for me. And, you know, again, like everyone's situation is different, but I can say that like if you are willing to spend the time getting involved in an open source project, whether it be you know writing code or working on documentation is great. Working on docs is a great way to get started. Like every project needs help. And it is a great way to get started. And you know, no, maybe it won't lead to a, a direct job offer, but you start to like you start to build up your own skills in terms of communication you start to build up a a visible reputation trail of like i've been involved and i've done things and that can have you know useful after effects later on but like you have to be kind of real about doing it and not just doing it for you know i hope i get like i get a job out of it very yeah. true and especially stuff like documentation it's uh by the way, I'm I'm sorry if I screamed at anyone right now. I had very <laughs> loud static noises and thought Mark's microphone was crashing. Um, but uh, documentation is super important. And 
even I was uh, asked, like, uh, what can you do to help people and, and all of these things. So that's something that you have out there that if you contributed it, you can show it to people. Like, this is my writing skill. This is what I've done here. Um, even if it's not code, it's super valuable. And maintainers are oftentimes a little bit behind on writing documentation because there's so much to do. We're a little bit. always happy if someone <laughs> comes up to us and says, like, hey, I want to write this page. Is that okay? Just talk to us before. Absolutely. And um, I know that something I've heard over the years is that many times the beginners are in the best position to explain things. Or maybe not beginners, but the recent beginners, the people who have just made the transition from beginner to you know, intermediate or experienced. Um, because they still know where the friction points are. They still know what was hard to understand. And so if someone in that position who is learning can develop their skills, their technical communication skills, their writing skills, then that can be a really powerful way to get involved in open source by putting your hand up and saying, hey, I'd love to try and do a pass at this. Does, does that sound good? Um, I, I have a little bit of a concern there. Um, yes, a beginner absolutely has uh, the best view to see where something in documentation might be lacking. But there, there is a trend out there that people learn a technology from a tutorial or from a blog post, and then they write their own tutorial and their own blog post. And essentially, they, they reiterate the original one. But they are not in a, in a position to judge if the tutorial they learned from was good in the first place. So what, what, we, what we are seeing is that there is like a, tutorial, a video tutorial somewhere that shows a project and that has like one specific quirk in there, like, like one use that we wouldn't intend. And then we get uh, issues where this one pattern pops up and again and again and again. And in the end, we figure out one person made a tutorial, introduced this quirk, and then there are now five, six, ten, twenty blog posts showing this quirk as the de facto standard way of doing something. So I would really hope that people check in a little bit with the official documentation when they do something like that, or try to more contribute to the original documentation instead of writing their own blog where essentially they get very late feedback or no feedback at all. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's really tough. Like, like, there, there's a really hard balance here because, yeah, like writing something out is a great way to confirm that, like, like solidify knowledge in your mind. And, you know, it, writing is a great thing for every level, whether you're you know, a beginner or a senior or whatever. And we certainly don't want to be like discouraging people from writing or acting like, you know, the official docs are the only thing that anyone can ever write about a tool. But it, like Len said, it is also true that a lot of times we do see people kind of propagating misunderstandings unintentionally. And that can be its own kind of confusion. So may maybe I, I, I take it back a little bit. If you write something, make sure you don't only check the one source, but you check multiple sources, and one of all of those sources should be the official documentation. 
because we often see people even like very seasoned veterans that go out and create a course or something they just create that course based on the knowledge they accrued in the last five years and for the last three years they never checked back to the original documentation they never checked if they are still up to date but they put out that tutorial and that can be very harmful definitely yeah and i think that a community like reactive lux can be a great place to check in on things like that um you know we do have a a, a fair number of people who their only participation is sharing what they've written but you know something that we've tried to encourage and really struggled to get traction on having people actually participate in this way is ask for feedback before you publish it you know and i think that that's i think that that's a a good check for what you're describing right now is if we could if more people would try and talk about what they are working on you know what they're trying to write then other people could jump in and say wait 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 that's not how i understand it and then uh it could really be a great way for everyone to level up with each other community collaborative peer review definitely yeah, absolutely and it's also um i mean we are in a super weird situation where we just still see those legacy redux uh tutorials popping up every day everywhere um and that's not just like the personal block of some person just learning it's even company blocks where there's no internal review process at all it's just someone writes it it's going to be used for marketing without checking if it's actually up-to-date knowledge and that's pretty irritating honestly yeah definitely. What, what, what was what, what's the phrase like a a programming language like a programming you know programming language is being used if someone's complaining about it something along those lines i know the i know the general shape of what you're referencing but i can't, I can't summon a specific quote to mind it's like the, the good news about Redux is people are using it. The bad news is we're getting, we get complaints about it. The good news is it means people are actually using it. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah, it would be, you know, it's returning back to what Len said about like checks on knowledge. Um, I think, you know, communities like Reactiflux, one of the great one of the great potential uses for a space like this is serving as that community check on knowledge. You know, it's you can't have everyone who's learning Redux can't make a documentation PR. You know, there's just not enough documentation. There's not enough improvements that can be made. But if everyone, you know, it takes their own notes and publishes their notes as a blog post or something like that and shares it, and you know, if everyone if one one in ten people who are learning Redux read other people's blog posts and notes and gave, you know, twenty minutes of effort to provide them with feedback. I think that that you know that's just that could be a very powerful way for everyone to check their own knowledge to try and you know br bring everyone up together it, rather than being rather than you the two of you Mark and Lens being in a position of involuntarily expected to act as tutors for everyone learning the project that you're maintaining. Honestly, uh, ReactFlux is an amazing community generally to, to learn everything and, and especially Redux. 
the the Redux channel is super active. There are a lot of people that are really like living there. <laughs> you get the impression sometimes. Yeah. Um, answering everyone's questions. I mean, I, I think I, I did that for, for a year and then I had to step back a little bit because I became too obsessed about it. Um, I know but, that feeling. But like seeing people like even if someone is like a little bit off, other people will chime in, give other perspectives and and really help each other. And it's it's amazing to see how people just learn programming through a chat. Yeah, I you know, I, like I said, I got started just answering questions in Reactive Flux. And I don't have as much time or mental bandwidth to, you know, do lots and lots of that, or at least or at least not as much as I used to. And so seeing that there are other folks who are you know around and have helpful answers and are willing to spend their time helping out other people is amazing. Definitely. Yeah, that is a it's one of my favorite parts of Reactive Flux. That's why I've stuck around so long myself too. It's just kind of giving back, you know, uh leave the ladder down for the next round of people. All right. Well, we are so we're a little bit over an hour into the event, so um, we're going to start wrapping up here shortly. But um, I see we have one more. We have another question in Q and A in the Q and A channel. Um, this is maybe a little bit tangential, but it's it is a uh, you know a hot topic at the moment. How do you feel about AI apps like ChatGTP affecting how code is written? Do you have opinions on that? My instinctual opinion is I am inherently suspicious of pretty much anything a you know quote AI related these days. Like 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 I I, I, I feel like a bit of a Luddite when I say this, but like you know, I, I am suspicious of you know full self-driving cars. Sure. I'm suspicious of like airplanes with you know pure autopilot. I am suspicious of you know AIs generating answers to programming questions. And it's not that they're completely useless. It's just that I see a lot of edge cases that don't get covered or slightly like, especially in the case of like a lot of the chat GPT stuff that's been going around answers that sound real, but then you look at it and you realize that like half of it is nonsense in some way. And someone who's looking at it and doesn't have the full background would probably not be able to realize that we've we've seen some chat GPT generated answers pasted into the Redux channel within the last week or two. And frankly, they were pretty bad. Like they sounded mm. authoritative. And then you look at it, it's like, wait, no, that is totally not right. So I'll be honest, I am just inherently suspicious of most of that stuff because it is close, but not good enough. Yeah, I think it's like a, a tool that can be val very valuable if you have the knowledge to judge it. Like essentially, it can be a shortcut for you to write something that you have the knowledge to write anyways. And then you have to correct it and, and see where it goes. But uh, the problem is that thing is so good at sounding so confident. And uh, as humans, we, we're not good at interacting with that like i expect the person i'm talking to say like oh yeah it could work like this but i'm not exactly sure about this and that and and that thing is just like yeah you do it like this and no idea if it's right or wrong in the end 
Definitely. Um, and what I've also seen is that, uh, and that was with Copilot when I tried it out in the beginning, it uh, had very repetitive answers that oftentimes seemed like copy and pasted out of documentation, but oftentimes also of documentation of similar tools and not the tool itself. So uh, I was asking it uh, to write some Redux code for me and it gave me a Vuex code and stuff like that. Oh, funny. Yeah, I've run into a similar situation. I, I was asking, just I was playing around with the chat GPT and was asking it about various, you know, public APIs that I'm familiar with. It, it, like you said, Mark, that I have this expertise to sort of grade its answer on. Um, and I asked about two different public APIs. One of them, it actually wrote, you know, it about 90% correct code for the question that I asked it. Uh, it got a couple of details wrong, but the general shape of it, it was about as good as the examples from the documentation, but crafted to my specific query rather than, you know, just being whatever. It, it didn't directly copy paste out. It did actually answer my question correctly, which I was very impressed by. But a different network, which I presume has worse documentation, it completely fabricated an NPM module and then told me how to use this imaginary NPM module. So like, that's not helpful. <laughs> it didn't actually answer. It, it gave me, like you said, an authoritative answer to my question that was completely made up nonsense. So I, I, I think you're right. I think, it's, I think it'll be a very interesting, I think it'll be very interesting to see how it sh shakes out. Uh, one thought I did have on AI is that if these, if these, if this chat GPT was trained on in, internet, you know, just like writings available on the internet, a large volume of that, those writings are things like Reddit comments. And so being authoritatively wrong seems very on brand for them. If they only train it on checkmarked Stack Overflow answers ah. or all the Stack Overflow answers. <laughs> that yeah, doesn't I, always say that they are right, honestly. True. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's I think that's a good place to end. Thanks so much for for joining. I think this is, was a I think this was really great. I'm pleasantly surprised at how many people actually showed up to listen to us talk. That's cool. Yeah, it was yeah, really it fun. Was, it was pretty fun watching it jump from about eighty to about one hundred and fifty in a, under a minute. That was a little shocking, but very nice. Very welcome. All right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, anything you'd like to say on 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 our way out? A quick sales pitch for my company, Replay. We built a time traveling debugger for JavaScript. It is an amazing tool that can help you solve bugs faster. And uh, I am actually right now. Right, like, well, okay. Like as soon as I get done with this in another meeting, uh, I'm working on implementing, uh, re-implementing React DevTools support for our debugging process. So if you haven't seen Replay, please check it out, replay.io. Yeah, and if you're a front-end developer and are looking for a job in Germany, uh, my current uh, employer, uh, Mayflower, is located in Würzburg, uh, München, and uh, Berlin. And, well, they are amazing people. If you want a nice team, uh, say hello to them and uh, see where it goes. I cannot say so much about my next employer yet because I haven't been working there. I haven't been working with uh, all of the products yet. So I'll tell you that next time.
Sounds good. Uh, and I would be remiss if I did not mention um, it, we are closing out 2022 and React to Flux recently assembled a list of recommended books. Uh, if your company is one that offers an educational budget, uh, we have affiliate links. If you were to purchase some books for yourself, for your team, uh, you would be able to help us out, help us keep operating, keep events like this going, um, and also skill up, level up a little bit for yourself. Thanks so much for joining. This has been really great. Uh, we'll be doing a couple more of these before the end of the year and a few more events coming in January. All right. See you later. Sort of blessed. Thanks. Bye-bye.